morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity Heights during the time of Omicron. And, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, so many, I know you all know someone um, or, you know, several people. I know so many people from Trinity Heights, even in, just in this last week alone, who've gone down with Omicron or some variant of it. And uh, so we, thankfully, none of them have, it's not been severe. It's, it's all been fairly mild. And so we, we hope that they all make a quick and easy easy recovery in, in the next few days here. Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at the stats and it looks like the numbers have been dropping the last four or five days. So hopefully maybe by next week, it will be easier for us all to, to be together again. So we're looking forward to that. Um, just want to say a welcome back to, uh, first of all, Chris. Chris, uh, most of you know, is a friend from Seven years now since we've been in the city. I've, I've known him from the start, and we were part of a church planting uh, network, City to City, which was uh, with Redeemer's church planting network, and we were on a training course together. So, Chris, always great to have you with us. Uh, I always feel inspired and, and challenged uh, whenever you deliver the message. So looking forward to, to what you're going to share with us this, this morning. So well, welcome back. It's good to be back uh, at the beginning of a new-ish year. It feels like it's not as new as you wanted it to be. <clears throat> so, um, life is what happens when you're waiting for something else to happen. <laughs> life is what happens when you're waiting for something else to happen. That's what John Lennon had to say. Thank you, John Lennon, for that aphorism. <laughs> aphorism. Um, but it is relevant. I was thinking about that. It may be a little bit flippant to say that, but, you know, Jesus didn't really know what, what he was waiting for I guess he was imagining a moment when there could have been like an inaugural opener for his life and ministry, uh, where the sort of, uh, you know, the ministry debut. And what happens is, for the time being, he's hanging around with his mom and going to local things with his family, and he's never going very far from home. And Cana wasn't supposed to be the, the big curtain raiser. But what happens? Uh, his mother grabs him, points to the collision course that this family is having with, with Shane. The family party is in full swing and they're running out of drink. So Mary begs Jesus to take on the challenge and maybe Jesus thinks, no, this is not the time. This just not was what I had imagined for the opener. Is it too parochial? Is it too domestic? What is it about this context that makes it inappropriate? You see, in Luke, uh, if you ever remember the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel, there's this dramatic setting with the synagogue, and he opens the scroll, and he reads from the scroll, and he's, then he pauses, and you can hear a pin drop, and it's like, at this very moment, in front of your very eyes, this has come true, you know. And there's so much drama. But here in John's gospel, we have Jesus almost like walking onto the stage, edging backwards without making eye contact with the audience as the curtain goes up, still looking at his mother, wondering what he was about to be doing. And I love Jesus for that. I love that Jesus in John's Gospel doesn't really know when his ministry is, a, is supposed to officially start. Because it's so like us, we don't really have that much control. We think we know where we're going, we think we know how we got here, but actually it wasn't very planned in many cases. And, you know, we have plans, we have resolutions, uh, 
and where do we end up somewhere completely different? I was in Cambridge in England when I was uh, debating where we were going to be next. I had no idea where I was going to be. And it was 2013, walking along the edge of the river with the dog and just endlessly praying the same prayer, which is Thomas Merton's prayer that some of you might know. And it was so helpful to me. This is how it goes. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think that I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Could it be that Jesus didn't really know when was his time? And did he therefore sort of stumble into it? We could be starting 2022 at the threshold, feeling utterly bewildered, but we are safe. So we can say the two things, my Lord, I have no idea where I'm going, and therefore I will trust you always. Anyway, back to the story. That was a bit of a digression, <laughs> prompted by Jesus saying, this is not my time. But you know what, we know what the story contains and what the next episode is, because Jesus asks the hospitality crew for 150 gallons of water to be drawn from the well and put into these purifying jars. And by the way, why so many purifying jars in one house? I mean, you know, it's, it's not really normal to have that much of an issue with purification. You might have had a couple of bowls of water, but why have how many? Six 30-gallon containers? <laughs> Maybe the Maybe the wedding location had a particularly neurotic house manager who was concerned about purification, and it was his thing. But anyway, there are six of these massive jars <clears throat> scavenged from every part of the house. And as the story goes, when they draw the water and take it to the sommelier or the chief steward, uh, he says, where did you get this amazing wine? And little does he know that he's got a whole cellar full of 800 bottles of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> which he never knew was there. <laughs> Must have been the most incredible party for the whole generation from that part of, like, from Nazareth through Cana all the way to the Sea of Galilee. It must have been the talk of every village. What does it mean, and I felt like this was very appropriate, what does it feel like <clears throat> to be slopping buckets of water across the dance floor in the middle of a party where everything is running out? I thought that's a brilliant picture of the Christian life. You know, things are running out all around us. We feel the anxiety building, you know, the people that you know getting sick, somebody you care for getting sick, or somebody might get sick that you've been depending on. And the confidence of this city is like an all-time low and the hubris is going and it seems like things are running out. Or just the sheer effort of making it through and trying to push back against all that comes against you. And 
You feel like packing up and leaving the party. You feel like everything inside of you is crying out, home, get me home. And so I say the world and the city that we're in is resembling a party where things are running out fast. There's not even drinks left at the bar anymore. And the staff are making the dance floor dangerous by spilling all that water as they go. What are they doing over there in the back room anyway? And I thought, things aren't fun anymore for a lot of us. It's not really swinging. Too many caveats, too many people have stayed home or left the city altogether. And it is a such pervasive grumble, it can really get you down, it can get into you. So I want you to think about the picture of carrying buckets of water from a well to the back room and say that's how we are to keep going. If nothing else sits with you today, just let that image of people being water carriers for Jesus getting the buckets of water out of the well into the back room, even though things look like they're running out fast. And you get, you get into that mode of thinking that, well, I'm just doing what Jesus wants me to do. And it does take a while to let that sink in. Everything else around you is crying out, don't bother. But you keep on keeping on. And though the water's just water, it becomes this gorgeous wine. But how? I mean, I, I feel like this is always a dilemma. You get these beautiful stories about transformation, and you think, yeah, but what about today? How about us translating it? So I've mixed my metaphors, um, or mixed my Jesus stories, and said a little bit, a cup of water goes a long way. I've taken the image of Jesus saying, anyone who gives one of these little ones a cup of cool water will get a reward. And I've used that, I've inserted it into this story. I thought, well, he may not have a 30-gallon container of water, but a cup will do with Jesus, a cup of cool water, to someone who's been rubbished or discarded by the world, that's going to be enough. I think about it. I mean, we all have an opportunity to focus on just one person. We know that there must be at least one person in our lives that we could be called to be focusing on right now. And we can be empowered by a story like this, to think about how even though the scale of the need around us is so huge, you know, the emergency we find ourselves in is planet-wide, and there seems to be no time, and it's like we're living in a house of neurotics, and there's just everybody's scared. There is an opportunity here, and maybe Jesus is calling us to just think about the one person in front of us, and to do with all our heart and soul and love that we can muster, to treat that person as if they are the only person that matters and not be intimidated by the scale of the issues around us. So you give somebody a cup of cold water and you pray for a miracle. And the king will reply, I tell you, whenever you did this for one of the least important of these little ones, you did it for me. So Jesus has the ability to coax us over the edge uh, with with this, my favorite phrase, small gestures, which I see more. Every time I preach, I seem to talk about gestures. Well, it's, it's really my thing. It's like Jesus coaxes us over the edge into a small gesture and knows all the time that we are destined for greatness and that 800 bottles of wine is what comes next, but we don't feel it. All we have is the cup of cold water. And we have to wait an uncomfortably long time before we ever see happening in the full massive beauty of what Jesus wants to do with the world. But right now, all we have is the water. <clears throat> We're running out of time. I want to just make a couple of more comments about what 
this miracle of Cana grace could look like. And I've come across this phrase, which I love, about the economy of scarcity and breaking free from the economy of scarcity. And I wanted to give you that as a thought. Because you know the calculations they make about how much alcohol is going to be needed and how much consumption went all awry and they're in a catastrophe, a domestic challenge and panic. And yet Jesus suddenly throws open the doors of the cellar, this secret cellar that he had all along, you know, the supply. And I thought, well, that's really what our life at this location could be about as Trinity Heights. It could be our community is about throwing open the doors of this secret cellar in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a time of scarcity, and not to give in to the logic that we should just pull in our limit, limit our resources and sort of keep, keep things sustainable. In a time of a mindset of scarcity thinking, it's literally relevant to us in terms of how we use our money, is to say, be a little bit less calculating, be a little bit less uh, rational about how we use our dollars. Maybe put a bunch of them in an envelope, and I know I did this in the UK because you could get to somebody's front door, but slip it under somebody's front door. It's harder in New York. But I just think, do something that really helps you to be free from the economy of scarcity, especially now. Metaphorically, I think you can also say, get away from the scarcity thinking by thinking about your life in terms of the richness of the wine, not the tastelessness of the water. So when you think about the normal math of how many times do you forgive somebody, seven times, is that enough? No, seven times 70. 70 times seven. That's more like it. That's turning the water into the wine. That's saying we're not going to just calculate with these jars of 30 gallons and filling them up to the top. So we go from like, what, deficit to zero in a, in a, in a precarious culture of purification. But Jesus wants to do more. It's not just about filling ourselves up to the top again. It's about going beyond and above and, and, and in, in an irrational way saying, no, there's going to be a transformation going on here. So not just seven times forgiveness, but 70 times seven forgiveness. And when you're in relationships, whether it's with a sibling or a a parent-child relationship or a spouse relationship or a friend, don't just expect to get back what you give. That's the purification culture of like, we just make it up to zero. Go above and beyond and imagine that Jesus wants your living and your loving to go to the point of limitless. So don't just love a little bit and expect a response. Love and push through when there's no response. With somebody you don't like particularly, love them a bit more or even a lot more and see what happens. This is the third day. Do you notice that? This is the third. Cana happened on the third day. And in the next passage, there's talk about the third day clearly being about the resurrection. So there's a hint, a bit more of a dramatic hint. This is about us being resurrection people, not just recycling, not just sticking with what we've normally done. And in a culture of scarcity, we need to live as those who already have resurrection. And then I thought, well, allow your imagination for the world to launch. Uh, you know, this whole uh, the gospel that we keep on referring to, it sometimes gets stuck in an image of extracting people from the combat zone and letting the world go to hell. So it's like a really, a really limited version of the good news. And too much of our gospel is anchored in that simple but important story of how you get free from debt, of guilt, and find a new start, which is important, but it's not the whole gospel. 
And you know, for the first few hundred years of Christian uh, life, often under the pressure of persecution, they used to do a lot of imagery and pictures, all right, in the catacombs and all that. And what were the pictures of in the first few hundred years? For many, many generations, they were the pictures of Jesus standing in front of paradise. They weren't pictures of Jesus on the cross. They were pictures of Jesus with a lamb over his shoulders, looking remarkably like Orpheus coming back from the underworld. You know, there were pictures of Jesus with lots of vines and lots of grapes and lots of wine and water and wells. And Jesus in front of an open tomb and Jesus in front of Lazarus, who's been raised. And Jesus with a banquet. And Jesus with lots of people celebrating. And those were the images that dominated in the early centuries of Christian community. Now, we need the cross, and I want to be, this, I want to be the first to say that my life is center on the, centered on the cross and the resurrection. I'm not diminishing it. I'm just saying we need to have images in our heads of this world being very concretely changed by the resurrection and by Jesus. So we need Jesus to be standing in this world in front of a transfigured and transformed paradise version of this world and be brave enough to do that like they did in the early centuries and to imagine Jesus in front of open tombs and imagine Jesus in front of supplies of beautiful uh, wine in front of where there's no, not enough sustenance and to, to imagine Jesus being presented to us as the one who is for this world and doesn't just regard it as being the unfortunate context out of which he has to rescue us. Allow our imagination to launch, because if we don't have the Jesus of the Cana miracle, the Cana grace, we won't get very far in a time of scarcity and in a time of bewilderment about the way the world is going. I had a very uh, literal experience of this type of miracle, and it happened in the most obscure place. It was many years ago, and I'm always reluctant about telling stories from decades ago, because it feels like, have you got nothing more recent to say? But I do have this in my life, as the, the same place I've talked about, Juarez. And it's like we used to go on the Wednesday afternoons in 1990, so that dates me. We used to go to the jails in the city, the ones that were used for people that were like found brawling in the streets at night and just chucked in for a few nights. To, to sort of like, they weren't heavy-duty prisons, but they were jails. So they let the Christians get in there, on Wednesdays and Fridays. And they would bring uh, food and, and drink. And they would bring sort of hibiscus. It was like uh, agua de Jamaica, uh, is that right? Yeah, hibiscus tea. And it was in these big old thermos containers. The, the ones that seem to be universal, orange with a white lid, you know what I mean? And this was one heavy duty thermos of this agua de Jamaica. And they used to get the, the Christians in this uh, community would be allowed to, to get the people out of the cells. We'd sit in the cells with them. There's like 30 people to a cell. And you'd, you'd be sitting there and, and sort of with people for about an hour or so. And then you'd be allowed to come out into the courtyard and you'd form a sort of uh, strange scene of people dancing. There was some uh, people that had been... Uh, to being out of been out of the drug scene and they've managed to get clean and they were the musicians with a guitar on and a whittle on all the, all the traditional musical instruments and there was this thumping beat and the music would start up and then there'd be this remarkable experience for about an hour and a half of people dancing and the prison guards were included so for an hour and a half on a wednesday and a friday there was this ludicrous scene of christians deciding to spend a few hours in a cell and then out of the cell in the courtyard. And at the end of it, we would hand out the drink and the food and we'd all go home. And this time, there was an hour of giving out 
the, the food, and the, the harmaica never, basically the level never dropped after about the first half an hour. People were thinking that we'd run out of it, but it didn't stop. And the people around it were working class, very basic, uh, not educated people, but they just knew that something was not quite right about the math here. And they kept on giving out the harmaica, and they, they knew that they thought in their heart and soul, this is what Jesus was doing right there, to validate the ludicrousness of what they were doing. And nobody, I went and wrote back to the community years later, and it hasn't been published, it hasn't been recorded, but I know it happened. And I think that's so typical of how the Holy Spirit works, where these types of beautiful moments of, in the middle of when things are running out, when you think that you're doing something which is hardly of any consequence in the big scale of things, Jesus is present and making it worthwhile. So we need to launch our imagination. We need to come against this economy of scarcity in the way that we relate to the world around us. And so stories like the Cana miracle are the most important things that can narrate our life at this time. Don't give in to this effort of trying to make a little bit go a long way in a sort of human way, but just give in to the idea that Jesus can take one cup of cold water and make it become 800 bottles of amazing, good quality wine. So, I want to pray uh, using a, a couple of verses from the prophecies that I'm sure were familiar to the people at that party in those early days of Jesus' life. The prophecy from Joel. On that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And from Isaiah, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-matured wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-matured wines strained clear. And a verse from Amos. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Jesus, place on our hearts, work inside of our souls, a thirst for the kingdom, that will never go away until we are fully there. Please help us, each one of us, to hold each other to account, to live as a community where the cellar, the secret supply, is very much our secret story. And we keep giving because we know that we have this resource. And we keep hoping because we're not just optimists, we are profoundly affected by the resurrection. Jesus, you came to be able to give us life and life to all its abundance and to give us the joy that doesn't depend on there always being enough to go around. Work in our hearts and souls. Give us this beautiful good news rooting us in this community where that good news is lived. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings